Okay, we are studying the New Testament book of First Thessalonians together, and uh, we're in the fifth chapter. So if you have your Bible with you, turn there. First Thessalonians chapter 5. The title, oh, hello guys, this is fun of you all down here on the carpet. There's my son right in the center. That's good, son. Good job. My boy right there. Where's your Bible? <laughs> it's okay. He has it memorized. Pastor's kid. Memorized it. The title of this message is The End of Grumbling and Self-Absorbed Entitlement. Huh? Come on. The end of you. Just kidding. (laughs) And me. That's a a rather ambitious but hopeful title. Uh, We'll see. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're just going to look at verses 16 through 18 this morning. We'll read those verses together. I'll be reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Paul writes and says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your authoritative, inerrant, absolutely true, powerful, living and active word. We ask that now, Holy Spirit, you'd draw us into the truth of the word and you would cause it to have a profound effect on our lives because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Because we in Christ are the beloved of God. Because God, you're real and present and working in our lives no matter how out of control and radical this world feels. Jesus, you rule and you reign. So help us live lives that are consonant with that truth and faithful to your call and fruitful and good for us and for your glory and for the world around us. So help us to hear now, please, Lord. Draw us in. Help us to be attentive and to understand. Help me, please, to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to your word and brings glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I had a wonderful Saturday. I hope you guys had a good Saturday. There were certain factors that came together for me having this Saturday. Uh, There was surf yesterday, which is pretty much the main thing. If there's surf, I'm generally good. But the sun was out. It's warmer than usual. And the water is warmer than usual. For those of you that haven't ventured in, it's about 73 degrees right now, which is generally unheard of in this area. No wetsuit required. So now may be an opportune time for you to start going in the ocean, maybe today after church. And I had a great day. It started out down at Jelly Bowl, one of the local beaches here with my family, just hanging out on the sand and just being together there on the beach early in the morning. And then uh, it got to be Fifi's nap time, my daughter. So Kate, my wife, took her home to have a nap. And my son, Isaiah, and I grabbed one of our friends who's here today. And we headed down to Ventura to go surfing. We surfed Sea Street in trunks, warm water, good waves. I felt like I was somewhere else. It was Greater than Ventura has ever been. Sorry, Ventura campus. It's just not usually that nice. We had a wonderful surf down there, good time together. And then we were driving home, and my son and I were like, why wouldn't we surf again? Look, little waves at Rincon. So we pulled off at Rincon. We surfed again. 
And then we went home for a little bit. And then toward the evening, I took Fifi down to the beach. Some gals from the church watched her and I surfed again. (laughs) It was a wonderful day. Every Saturday should be like that. No reason to complain. But life isn't always like that, is it? Yesterday was a good day. Life isn't always like that. There's usually reason enough to complain, or we at least are pretty good at finding reasons to complain. And my day started off by finding some reasons to complain. Before we went to the beach in the morning, I went outside and Kate, my wife, and my daughter Fifi were walking around the yard just looking at stuff and feeding and watering the pigs and whatnot. And uh, I walked outside and I, I was all set to be happy and joyous in the Lord and looking forward to the day. And, you know, I immediately noticed that my lawn was browner than it ought to be. We're in a drought. I have a a green lawn still. We're on a well, but it was browner than I like the lawn to be. I'm a lawn guy. Anybody else here a lawn guy? Almost nobody. I could tell this illustration is not going that well. I can feel it. I'm a lawn guy. I like green lawn. The lawn was a bit brown. And then a couple brand new gopher holes. Anybody hate gophers? Can I get a witness? Okay, a little more action there. And, you know, those are not real reasons to complain. And yet I found myself there in this beautiful setting with my beautiful wife out there, my little daughter, my teenage son was still sleeping. God bless him, as a teenager should be. But I I found myself there just kind of complaining. The grass is brown and the gophers are coming up. No real reason to complain. But life often gives us real reasons, doesn't it? I mean, there's those diagnoses. There's those losses. There's those heartaches. There's those broken relationships. There's those failures. And all of those things are part of life. Life is like that. But what God is doing for us in the text is offering us something, an opportunity, a possibility that transcends the way that life is. Life is like that. Loss, failures, heartaches, broken relationships, bad diagnosis. Life is like that. But God is offering us in the text something that transcends the pain of this life, which is he himself, Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's a very real way you'll notice as we study it that Christ is being offered to us, held forth to us in this text. Now, one of the wonderful things about Jesus is he was honest about this world. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Life is hard. Life is like that. The text, though it's a clarion call to rejoice always and in all things give thanks, The text isn't naive. The text doesn't deny the reality of life. Paul doesn't have his head in the sand and sort of a pie in the sky, positive sort of theology. The the text doesn't deny the realities of life. Jesus, our Lord said, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. 
So the moment Jesus said, this life is going to be tough, he was also quick to say, but I have overcome, transcended, am above and better than the difficulties of this life. And that's a beautiful reality that the text is holding forward to us today. The text is telling us that in and because of Jesus, we as his people always have reason to rejoice and to give thanks. Because of Jesus. The text says, rejoice always. Right? And then it says in the 18th verse, pray, or excuse me, in everything give thanks to him. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What the text isn't doing is saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get over it and be happy. It's not saying that. And it's not saying just pretend like nothing is wrong and just thank God and everything will be okay. The salient phrase is, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Not because of any other reason, because of who Christ is and what he's done for us, there is wonderful hope in the difficulties of this life that we can, in the midst of pain, rejoice. We can, in the trials and the tribulations, give thanks. And and, and a beautiful little phrase is, this is God's will for you. You got to hear that as love. We often sometimes assume that God's will is going to be a hard thing or a a difficult thing for us. But this is, this is a love thing. This is a God who created you and calls you by name, who fearfully and wonderfully made you, who's numbered the hairs upon your head, to whom you matter infinitely. Say, this is my will for you. That in the hard times, in all times of life, I would give you in and through Jesus reason to rejoice, reason to look up, praying without ceasing and reason to give thanks. That's what the text is leading us toward. And Paul is writing this to a church that knew pain, right? They they knew pain. They they were birthed in pain. Paul went there and preached the gospel and was there a little while and no sooner did persecution unleash on the church and Paul and his buddies were chased out of town. This was a church that was experiencing real persecution. I mean, it was really costing them something to follow Jesus. There was actual opposition to their wanting to be Christ followers in that culture. We know from the text that this is a church that was struggling with sexual immorality, like many of us. This was a church that was grieving and trying hard to understand what it meant that their loved ones who knew Jesus had died, like many of us. This was a church that was wondering about their afflictions and the condition of the world and and the challenges to the world and a church that had gaps in their theology and understanding that that made it difficult for them to reconcile who Christ was, his promised return and victory over sin, evil and the world and what they were seeing and experiencing today. They knew pain. They knew contradiction. They knew challenges. They were very much like us. And so Paul and his pastoral heart at the end of this letter here is giving them these little staccato blasts of truth, right? Just these quick little things, pray without ceasing. Next verse, or first verse, rejo- excuse me, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, these staccato blasts, and he'll move on next week. Do not quench the spirit, don't despise prophetic utterances, and so on and so forth. 
And what he's doing then there is wanting to help them, us, the church, in our life together. And that's very much the context of this call to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things. It's, it's, it's very much about us together. All of those verbs are in the plural. We generally read anything, including any text, from an individualistic standpoint. Right, because we're radical Western individuals. And before we think about how does it affect and form the community, we think, well, what's in it for me? It's the way we are. But this text is really being spoken to the, to the gathering and about the gathering of the church. If you'll back up to verse 11, he's speaking about their life together. We looked at this the last couple of weeks. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Talks to them about how to deal with their leaders. We looked at this last week. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Then he starts to talk about all of our relationships together. Live in peace with one another. He says in verse 14, And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly or the undisciplined, encourage the faint-hearted, the discouraged, help or stand by the weak, be patient with all men, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. So do you see how he's talking about our life together? And then when he goes into this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, the verbs remain plural. He's speaking to us about our life together as a church. I think he's talking about postures and attitudes of our gathering and our worship. We generally think individual. What does this mean for me? How does this affect me? And and we need to process these true truths individually. But we also need to look at it corporately because I think that's what he's wanting to do in the text. And in that, he's wanting to give us great hope. Life is hard. But when you come together, when the church gathers, whether it's a few of you in a home or on Sunday mornings or in a little Bible study or whatever it is, life is hard. But when you come together, don't forget to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Life is hard. But when you come together and you do life together and you gather, don't forget to turn your gaze and your attention upward to pray without ceasing. Life is hard. But when you come together, don't forget that in Christ Jesus, you have reason to give thanks at all times. Life is hard, but don't forget the sacred hope and glorious possibility of Jesus' followers together. When you do that, rejoice and pray and give thanks because this is God's kind and merciful will for you because of, in, and through, and in light of Jesus. This is what the text is saying. And here's what the text is doing for us. The text is giving us a much needed recalibration. The text is helping us to be recalibrated toward God. You hear that? Important phrase. To be recalibrated toward God. Because, let's be honest, we are normally calibrated toward ourselves. What that means is 
that means is that we usually read things, anything, events, thoughts, and the world by the measure of self. I mean, isn't that usually our first thought? What does that mean for me? How does that affect me? Well, what are you saying to me? Well, what's in it for me? Well, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, what are you asking of me? I mean, don't we, aren't we generally calibrated toward self? Right, there's a a normal way in which we are as people, some God-given thing in us, but then there's the fallen sense in which we as God's creation, as God's redeemed people, the church are meant to be calibrated toward Christ, but so often our first and, and our ruling and governing thoughts are about us. And the call, the help of the text is to recalibrate us away from self and toward God. Here's why that's important. Several reasons, but here's a couple. Self-absorption, the calibration toward self, is generally what leads us toward a life of grumbling. You know what I mean? Grumbling is kind of the antonym or, or the opposite of rejoicing. And usually we're grumbling and complaining with, because, well, that didn't work out well for me. And I don't like what that means for me. And that doesn't feel fair to me. And I didn't get the promotion. And I didn't get the girl. And I didn't get this and that and the other. And so it leads us toward a life of grumbling and complaining. And we all love people that complain all the time. My daughter, Fifi, 18 months old. And, you know, she's at that stage where they begin to transition from just like cute and innocent to complaining and demanding. You know what I'm talking about? My son, 14, he's far beyond it. Holy and righteous all the time. Always satisfied and content. Kidding. But my 18-month-old... Can I get a witness from some parents? That transition stage where it goes from cute little cooing and little gurgly sounds and like whatever you want to this little demanding thing. (laughs) Some people never grow up beyond that. (laughs) And what comes with that self-orientation, that self-calibration is not only this general attitude and proclivity to grumbling, but also this radical sense of entitlement. Babies have it. Because who cares what anyone else wants? I'm a baby and I want it now. Some of us never grow beyond that. And you know, our culture applauds, cultivates, propagates, and forms that, doesn't it? The sense of entitlement. You're the greatest thing God has ever made. You can do and deserve and should have anything and everything. How many of your mamas told you that? She was lying. (laughs) She was lying to you. The one thing we deserve for sure is hell. Beyond that, touch and go. But we have this radical self-calibration that, that, that is a, a sense of entitlement and so a tendency to grumbling and complaining. Now, I, I use the, the silly 
Obviously, non-helpful example earlier about complaining about brown grass and gophers. And there's a side to that which is okay. And there's probably a, well, I won't talk about the good side of that. But the bad side, what generally happens there is I'm thinking I deserve better. Isn't that the thought? Why, Why else would I complain? I know we're in a drought, but come on. Every man needs green grass. And I know it's only a couple of gophers, but I want no gophers. I want in life the grass to be green and for there to be no blemishes or holes. Isn't that the way that we think? Believing that we deserve better. And gophers and brown grass are one thing. But what about real stuff? What about the missed promotion? What about the adulterous spouse? What about the broken relationship? What about the terminal diagnosis? What about the chronic poverty? What about the way we were violated? What about the wayward son or daughter? What about What about when our children die? What about the great injustices of the world? Don't we have a right to complain and demand something better of life? Perhaps. But the text is beckoning us further. The text is calling us beyond that. The text, the backdrop of it is reminding us that something different and better has happened to us and the world in Jesus. That the world really is and was broken. That we really were enemies of God, the scriptures say, alienated from God in our sin, separated from God and his promises, rebels, the scriptures called us, but God loved us. And so he sent and gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ. And then Christ rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and the devil and to bring us new life and resurrected life. And he rules and he reigns with a promise to return. And when he comes back, he will set right everything that has ever gone wrong, undo all of evil's effects and rule and reign in righteousness on the earth. Something, praise God. The backdrop of the text is it's something different and something better has happened to us and the world in Jesus. And so, though all those things are a part of life, the violations, the deaths, the heartaches, the failures, the brokenness, the cheating, though all of those things are a real part of life, God has something more for us. Those things don't have the final word. Those things 
don't define who we are or how we need to think or how we need to act. Something better in Jesus. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Again, hear it. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And in everything, give thanks. Now, those things can sound challenging and and pie in the sky. Let me tell you what's not going on. When the text is calling us to rejoice always, it's not forbidding us from ever feeling sad. It's not telling us that as Christians, we don't grieve. We do. We do. It's not telling us that we can never be disappointed. It's not saying that. When it says rejoice always, it's reminding us that in the midst of the difficulties of this life, in this world, you will have trouble. Because of Jesus, we can always find reason to rejoice in the face of pain. Take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what it's telling us. And that when we get together as followers of Jesus Christ, though our lives have been hard and there's tumultuous trials in the midst of us, let's not forget that there's got to be, I know there is, there has to be some reason to rejoice in Jesus even when life hurts. There's always a reason. There's always a way. That's what the text is telling us. And when it says to us, pray without ceasing, it's not some Weird, creepy, you walk around, just never watching, praying, bumping into things. That's, that's not what's happening. No, then maybe that would be good. It's telling us that even though life is hard, and we can get overwhelmed with the wind and the waves and the circumstances, when we come together, we ought to remind each other to look upward and make it about Jesus and not us that it ought to be one of the rare moments in life where when we get in a room, it's not about us and each other. It's about Jesus. So what prayer is, looking upward, talking, talking to God, letting him minister to our hearts. And when it says to rejoice in everything, it doesn't mean but the moment you get the cancer diagnosis, your Christian diagnosis, your Christian responsibility is to say, praise the Lord, I'm so thankful for it. That's foolish. The Bible is full of lament. The Bible is full of real pain and multitudinous expressions thereof. What it is saying is that no matter what happens in life, because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, there is always... There has to be, there must be, there really is something to give thanks for because of Christ and what he's done for us. And the glorious hope and promise of the text is that we don't have to be ruled by the pain of this life, by the disappointment, by the trials, by the overwhelming circumstances. We get to gather as God's people and say, okay, guys, how is your week? Tough, I know. Let's rejoice in Jesus and what he's done. Let's look upward to God in prayer. 
Let's give thanks to God for who he is and the great and glorious savior he's given us in his son. There's so much heartache in this life, but there's so much that I've been forgiven for. Thank you, Lord. There's so many difficulties in this life, but there's so many blessings that God has put in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. The text is calling us to that. And it's giving us that opportunity. The text is an invitation to recalibration. Sure, individually through your life, but certainly the context is when we are being God's people gathered. Now, I don't know about you, but I I need help for that. I need help for that. I get self-absorbed. I start thinking about myself and I start thinking about what other people are thinking about me. How's that trap? Thinking about what you're thinking about me. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? You're thinking that I'm thinking about me right now? I need help. I need to be a part of a people who hear the upward call and endeavor by grace to live into it. Life is hard, but we're going to rejoice. Just just right now together, we're going to rejoice because of Jesus. I feel overwhelmed. I feel discouraged. I feel abandoned. But right now, we're going to turn toward God. I feel jilted. I feel cheated. I feel crossed. But right now, I'm going to give thanks to God for Christ and his cross. It's an invitation to joyful, God-oriented gratitude. It's an invitation to Christ-oriented celebration. Because we can. Because we can. Because we're the redeemed of God. I mean, not everyone in this room is a Christian, but if you're a Christian, you have been forgiven much. You've been forgiven. I have been forgiven much. God's grace in our lives has been abundant and his faithfulness is everlasting. And so because of that, we really can. Again, because of Jesus, The call of the text is not to muster it up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and put on a happy Christian faith. The call to the text is for a moment, let Jesus be bigger than your drama. Because he is. He's bigger and he's better than. My wife and I love this passage in 1 Peter. All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we've been born again. Right there. If you didn't have any reason to rejoice before, write that down. There's one. By his great mercy, we've been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, someone ought to rejoice. Now we live with great expectation. You see the transcendence of the text. Here's here's a, a, a better reality. Life is hard. But because of what God has done in Christ through his cross and his resurrection, now we live with great expectation. We have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept for you in heaven, pure, undefiled, beyond the reach of gophers and drought. (laughs) And through your faith, listen to this, Christian, God is protecting you by his power. I know it doesn't always feel that way, but our faith is formed by scripture, not the way that we feel. He is protecting you by his power. 
until you receive the salvation, speaking about his return and the fullness thereof, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So, look at the response. So, be truly glad. A priceless inheritance beyond the drama of this world, beyond things that break and decay and get deformed and twisted. Beyond that, we have promises in Christ. So be truly glad. Now look at the honesty of the text. There's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. How's that for encouragement? Did someone tell you you'd become a Christian and there'd be no problems? Wasn't me. Wasn't the Bible. These trials will show, now look, there's a purpose in these. It's not senseless the way we often perceive pain in the world because we have a king who's good, shepherd who loves us, father who cares for us. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. No, your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, and it will, Christian, cling to Jesus, it will. When your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So you love him, even though you've never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. You see, we... We do this thing, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks because we can. Because there are wonderful, glorious truths in Christ that have formed this. And we also do it, and here's an important point, I'm just about finished. We also do these things, listen to me now, because God is worthy. God is worthy. God is worthy of being rejoiced over God is worthy of all of our attention being turned to him in prayer and God is worthy of thanksgiving. And every once in a while, the Christian needs to live into this truth to get over ourselves and give God the glory, honor, and praise and thanks due his name. I mean, that's that's, that's part of the deal. God is worthy of all these things because of what Christ has done. You see, rejoicing and giving thanks are appropriate responses to God. And they're deeply rooted in a theology that says, even though life is hard, we believe that God is good. Deeply rooted in a theology that says, even though I feel abandoned, I believe that God is with me in Christ. Deeply rooted in a theology that says, even though the world feels out of control, I believe that Christ is high and exalted, ruling and reigning, coming again. Deeply rooted in a theology that says, even though I was jilted and overlooked and taken advantage of and violated and abandoned, I am the beloved of God in Christ. These things we believe by faith. And so as a people of faith, we rejoice. We turn God word in prayer. We give thanks. Finally, we do so because we need it. We need it. I need it. There's a way in which this text saves us or rescues us, so to speak. I need it. 
Man, if you think brown grass and gophers could bum me out, you ought to see the real problems in my life. Anybody else got real problems? Anybody got two-handed type problems? Not many of you have problems. No, really, anybody have big problems in their life? Oh, okay, I'm surprised, so few of you. God bless you. All the more reason you should be rejoicing. Real problems. And I I need to be rescued by this text so I don't get trapped in my self-calibrated, entitled pity. Pull me out of that, Jesus. Pull me out of that with your glory, your majesty, your power, and your kindness. With the help of the Holy Spirit, formed by the truth of Scripture, pull me out of that. Now, one of the things about preachers is they are generally hypocrites. But most often, they try not to be. So I try not to be. So yesterday, I'm standing there, literally getting bummed out and grumbling and complaining about brown grass and gophers. And I think for just a moment about the text that I'll preach today. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And all things give thanks, for this is God's will for me in Christ Jesus. And so I just did a rare preacher thing. I tried to practice what I preach. I just began to think of reasons why I could rejoice in that moment. Reasons to give thanks. I turned to God in prayer. And I'll tell you what, in a very, you know, silly moment, It rescued me. I was flooded, flooded with a sense of God's goodness, kindness, care, mercy, and presence in my life. And moments later, I was saying to myself, I am a really blessed man. And then I went to the beach four times and I knew I was a really (laughs) blessed man. See how the text helps us? We'll just finish by reading this parallel text from Philippians. Recalibration comes with a promise. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Yeah, it's just like our text. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. You see that same, uh, I don't know, three things? Rejoicing, praying, thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Now look at the promise of recalibration. Look at the promise of recalibration. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Come on. That is a promise we need. That is a truth we could stand on. Has anybody here ever experienced that peace beyond comprehension? Man, I have. Now, let me finish by saying this. It's, it's because of Jesus and what he's done and who he is. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we can experience that promise. It's, it's because of what scripture has told us that we can stand upon that promise, but that doesn't mean that it's void of effort from you. Somebody ever tell you that following Jesus would require no effort on your point, part? Excuse me. It wasn't me and it wasn't the Bible. Jesus said, do you want to follow me? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow. Sometimes that means, even though life is hard, I've got reason to rejoice in Christ. 
even though I feel trapped in these circumstances and overwhelmed and a little disgruntled with God, I'm going to turn to him in prayer and I'm going to begin, I'm going to, begin to give him thanks for what he's done in my life. And may we then experience the glorious promise of scripture, peace that surpasses all understanding, the guarding of our hearts and our minds in Christ for his glory. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful hope that's before us. Help us to not feel burdened by it and like now I have to muster something up, but help us, Holy Spirit, to think about our lives and the way that God is present in them and the forgiveness of sins and your grace and your mercy and just Holy Spirit draw us to a place of gratitude and rejoicing and Godward attention, prayer. Pull us into that, Lord. Don't let us get stuck in our stuff, but Holy Spirit, come help us. Minister the love of the Father to us and rescue us by the truth of this text.